Now turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 5. Let me just catch you up on what's happening. Nebuchadnezzar in this chapter has been dead for many years, and whatever hopes there were for reformation and justice in Babylon died with him. Now a man named Belshazzar is on the throne, and pretty quick we find out pretty much all we need to know about this character. We're told immediately that he's throwing a party for a thousand nobles. So you can just imagine the size and the expense of this party. And in the first four verses, one verb gets repeated five times so that you can know what the main activity of this party involves. See if you can find what that verb is in Daniel chapter 5. It says, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father or ancestor, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. So that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. What's the verb that keeps getting repeated? What's the verb to drink? That's what was going on at this party. And there were women at this banquet, which was a little unusual for an ancient royal banquet. But if you notice carefully, you'll see they're all women of his harem, wives and concubines, and they're drinking as well, and they would be there for one purpose. The writer is using fairly restrained language, but he's making it very clear that Belshazzar is giving free reign to any appetite he wants to indulge, and he's encouraging those around him to do the same. We've said before that appetites are never fully and finally satisfied, and sin always follows the law of diminishing returns. So things are getting a little boring, and he has an idea to kind of spice things up at this party. He remembers the goblets that Nebuchadnezzar had obtained many decades earlier from the temple in Israel. They were very valuable, and more than that, they were considered sacred objects. They had never been used for anything other than the worship of the God of Israel, what we've been doing here this morning. This king decides it would be kind of fun to take these vessels, which were the expression of devotion and holiness for an exiled people, and use them for an orgy to mock God. Now, I just want to make a little comment here. If you look at verse 2, the beginning of it might be interpreted, while he was under the influence of wine, he gave orders to bring the goblets. And the implication is that alcohol prompted him to do what he would never otherwise do. Clearly, the writer is highlighting the role of wine. I don't know what your church background is, but I grew up in a church tradition where we took great pride in never touching wine. Uh, I remember when I was a, a kid, junior high or elementary, I saw bottles of wine in the refrigerator of one of my friends, their, his parents, and, and I just thought, oh, that's terrible. You know, I guess they're not Christians or not very good Christians. Or, you know, it's just like if you were spiritual, you didn't drink wine, which made certain sections of scripture kind of embarrassing. Uh, for instance, we never talked about verses like, God makes wine that gladdens the heart of man, Psalm 104, 15. We never talked about how Jesus turned water into wine and Jesus actually drank wine. I know we didn't mention that because it's embarrassing to admit that you're part of a system that ends up saying that you're more spiritual than Jesus was. So I want to be real clear. Biblical writers do not say that abstaining from alcohol is the way that you separate sheep from goats. But the misuse and abuse of alcohol has caused untold suffering in our world. And that's what's going on here in the text. And it seems clear that the writer wants us to understand that was a factor in sinking to the depths that he, he might not otherwise have sunk to had he been sober. 
And I say this because like I've had people real close to me struggle very deeply with this problem. And I know people here will or, or know others who do. And all too often, churches just don't talk openly about this. And the truth is, addictions can be one of the most destructive, devastating forces in our world. So I just want to say this morning, if you wrestle with this problem or you think you might have a problem in this area, get help. Like, don't let this tank your life. There's all kinds of 12-step groups, Celebrate Recovery, uh, uh, all sorts of groups for Christians. They would love to help anybody who comes searching for help. Or maybe you know somebody who's struggling and you're concerned about them. Again, I've known situations where, like for year after year, decade after decade, somebody was, people knew that somebody was destroying their life and, and nobody did anything. Don't let that happen. Like, take action. Might require an intervention of some sort. And let's just be a community of truth and grace when it comes to this issue. Well, in Belshazzar's case, there's going to be a very dramatic intervention. Let's keep reading. Verse 5. It says, suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. And my guess is Belshazzar is probably wondering, like, have I had too much Chardonnay, you know, do I need to switch to coffee or something? But then he sees the words are real, and this terrifies him. It says his face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around their neck. He, he, he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale and his nobles were baffled. He can't understand the message, and that frightens him even more than just like the fact that there's a hand writing on the wall. Nobody can help him. But the queen, you know, uh, most likely Belshazzar's mother, remembers an old advisor of Nebuchadnezzar's. So Belshazzar sends some men, they track Daniel down, they get him out of bed in the middle of the night. Verse 13, so Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? Now, you got to understand the drama of this moment, okay? The book begins with Daniel as a young man in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Now, over 60 years have gone by, and, and Daniel's in his 80s, you know? When, we knew him first when he was like the strong young man, teenager probably. We, we saw that in one time in his life, he was the right-hand man of the most powerful king on the face of the earth. And now he has been so thoroughly discarded that the king doesn't even recognize him. Are, are you Daniel? Not because Daniel's lost his ability, but because this king is a joke. Doesn't want to hear the truth about himself or God. And one glance tells Daniel what's going on in this room. And that the, this king who is charged by God to serve the people is serving only himself. And then there's this moment where Daniel sees these golden goblets. He hasn't seen those maybe in, 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 since he was a boy. And he thinks about his home and that he's had to live away from his whole life. And maybe he remembers what it was like to worship in the temple. Daniel remembers when he was a boy and would gather with God's people. And those golden goblets that cost so much to create, they were used in the worship of God, and he sees what they're being used for now. And this king who's trashed Daniel's career and forgotten Daniel's people, and blasphemed Daniel's God, he sees the writing on the wall, 
And he asked Daniel for a favor. Tell me what it means. Tell me what it means. And he tells Daniel the same thing he told the other wise men. I'll give you lots of presents. The implication being that it's going to pay for Daniel to tell King Belshazzar what he wants to hear. Because if you got power, you know, you can often get people to say what you want to hear. It doesn't mean it's the truth. And if you're speaking to someone who holds power, you might be tempted to hold back from speaking truth because you want to get those rewards and you want to avoid the punishment. But Daniel, this old man, makes it very clear to Belshazzar he's not going to play that game. He wants Belshazzar to know he can't buy his way out of this one. There's just this magnificent courage in this old man. Verse 17 says, Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. We saw this last week. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal, lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like an ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You have had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life in all your ways. And Daniel shares one of the most arresting phrases in Scripture, and I want to write it on the board for for you right here. You knew. You knew, he says to Belshazzar. It's bad enough, Belshazzar, that you did such stupid and wicked things. What makes it worse is that he knew better. God had given him a front row seat for everything that had happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He knew Nebuchadnezzar had what he, what he had was from God. He knew the penalty for pride and arrogance. He knew who God was and he knew what God wanted and still he chose death. And Daniel says, you knew. You knew. And there's a very, very deep human dynamic at work here. And it's this, that we avoid responsibility for knowing the truth because we want to do what we want to do. So where the whole idea of plausible deniability comes in. You know, hey, don't tell me that. You know, it's like, sorry, officer, I didn't know the speed limit was right here. Belshazzar did not want to know. So he closed his eyes. Didn't want to look at the signs. Pretended that what happened to Nebuchadnezzar had nothing to do with him. Just threw another party, drink a little more wine, blew a little more money, kind of keep your mind off of it. But deep, deep down inside, he knew. He knew. This is one of the, the great dangers of spiritual life. You could call it uh, strategic avoidance, if you want. We avoid thinking about or, or reading about or talking about or dwelling on, looking at that which might convict us. 
and cause us pain or call us to change. And what's staggering is, I know what's right. You know, I know God is judge. I, I know that Christ died for my sin and, and I know the pain that my sin causes God and the world that He loves so much. And still I sin. And I just want to be real personal for a moment here. Is there any area of your life where you know and you're just closing your eyes? Last week we talked about pride and blind spots and I challenged each of you to find a Daniel in your life just to kind of ask them uh, to tell you the truth about you. And I hope you did that or, or are going to do that. I was with a real close friend this week and I asked him to do that and as soon as the words were out of my mouth, I wanted to be like, nope, nope, never mind, take it back. Because it's just so scary to face the truth about yourself. Because once you know, you're responsible to do something about it. So instead, I just, you know, try to avoid thinking about reality and, and I try to ignore those areas where I know, I know I need to change or grow. And I resist inviting or allowing other people to, to speak into my life. And I think the older we get, like the more we tend to do that because we get, get more resistant to change and, and growth. And we're kind of like, well, you know, I am who I am and I'm not going to change now. Ever heard anybody say that? Maybe, maybe we believe, well, you know, I kind of got life figured out now and I don't need anybody else's input. You know, and we, we become less curious. We make more statements and we ask fewer questions. We're less open to feedback and coaching and instruction. Just keep real busy, you know, steer clear of the, the deep friends that might speak truth and avoid thinking about reality. But deep down right now, you know. Maybe it's an anger issue or a gossip issue or a lack of a generous spirit. Or when you take time for reflection and you, and you allow yourself to hear from somebody you trust, you know. Wherever it might fall for you, don't close your eyes. Don't close your eyes. Belshazzar knew better. He knew a day of reckoning was going to come, and now it had. And God writes three words on the wall. There's kind of a wordplay involved, because in the ancient world, they love this kind of stuff. And these three words have kind of a double meaning, because each is a unit of measure, like a pound, ounce, and half ounce, which implies that Belshazzar had been measured or evaluated. But each word also has another meaning. And each word serves to shatter an illusion that Belshazzar clings to that it makes it possible for him to live in spiritual denial. So I'm going to write down the words that appeared on the wall. And the first is this one. Mene, numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. And the illusion involved here is that, well, it's my life. It belongs to me. I'm free to do with it whatever I want. I'm not responsible to anybody else. And the truth is, God says to Belshazzar, I've numbered your days, Belshazzar. Which is not mainly a chronological statement. It's mainly a theological statement. It's, not, it's, not, it's just not your life. You are where you are because God created you and gifted you and appointed you to do work for him for this little time that you're on earth. And the irony is that you thought because you were king that you'd, you weren't accountable to anybody else. But the reality is you're accountable to God. See, the great illusion in our day is, what's well, my life? I can do whatever I want with it. And the truth is, I've been given this one and 
one and only life from God who made me and appointed me and I'll stand before him one day and give an account for what I did with it. Because the sacred vessel that Belshazzar had been profaning most was not just the golden goblets. It was his life. It was his soul. God has numbered your days. Then there's a second word. Tekel. Measured. He says, you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. There's an illusion here. The illusion is that if I'm powerful enough and smart enough, you know, kind of clever enough, or, yeah, I, I can get away with wrongdoing. can get away with sin. It's possible to get away with it. And this belief that we can get away with stuff, this is deeply rooted in human nature. Uh, John Ortberg tells a story. He says, he says when, uh, when I was growing up, my mom kept cookies in a jar in the kitchen, which was off limits. It was verboten, forbidden. We had strict rules, which had always been enforced. Then my younger brother came along, the baby of the family. And he had a habit. He would go into the kitchen and close his eyes because he believed at this point in his life that if he couldn't see anything, nobody else could see anything either. So he would stumble around until he found the cookie jar, get the lid off it, take out a cookie, put the lid back on, stumble back out of the kitchen with his eyes closed the whole time. The forbidden cookies. And my folks, he says, who would never let my sister or me take cookies, would watch and not only not punish him, they would laugh themselves silly because they thought it was so cute when he did it. He says, I didn't think it was cute because he was 17 years old. <laughs> now, this is something that goes real deep in people. And it's an amazing thing to me, like even in church, like when we sin, our big fear is often that somebody's going to find out, you know, it might damage my reputation or people might talk, you know, and cause a little scandal. People might not think so well of me. So I'll just try to keep it a secret. Then it'll be okay. Even in church. You know, it really doesn't matter what anybody else knows. It doesn't. Because what matters is what God knows. And God knows everything. And Belshazzar is not much more in touch with reality than John's little brother was when he was young. So he, he closes his eyes to spiritual reality. He just takes whatever he wants from the cookie jar and thinks he's gotten away with it. And God says to him, you've been weighed, you've been, been measured, friend. If you think my eyes are too weak to see, you think my mind is too dim to know what's going on on earth, if you think you've gotten away with defying my authority and oppressing the people that I charged you to serve, you are sadly mistaken. And I have seen every action. I've heard every word. I've monitored every thought. You have been weighed on the scales. You've been found wanting. This is serious business. This is the judgment of God. Then the third word. Perez, broken. Just these three words to sum up a life. Numbered, measured, broken. Your kingdom is broken or divided. It's taken away from you. And there's an illusion uh, involved here too. And it's just that my life's just going to go on the way I want it to go on for as long as I want it to. You know, I know there might be some things in me, in my character, that need fixing. There's going to be plenty of time to do that. I can get around to those things when I'm good and ready. And God says to Belshazzar, what he says to another rich guy in the New Testament, he says, you fool. 
You fool. This is your night. The thread's cut tonight. Your life will be demanded of you tonight. Your kingdom will be broken. And now who's going to get all that stuff? See, all you're guaranteed is this one moment. You have just this one life to do what God calls you to do. You have no idea how many more days are going to be involved in it for, for you or for me. Just this one life to do what Nebuchadnezzar did. Humble yourself and ask for forgiveness for sin. And Daniel says this to Belshazzar. He says, King, this is your last night on earth. Your whole life has been numbered up to this point, and this is the end. And Daniel says that, and he's silent. And then we wait for Belshazzar to respond. We wait for him to do what Nebuchadnezzar did, to raise his eyes toward heaven and humble himself and submit to God, to fall on his knees and repent of his sin and beg for mercy. And it's just silence in that room. Verse 29 says, Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, gold chain placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. He dies alienated from the God of heaven. And the writer lets his life stand in stark contrast to Nebuchadnezzar as a severe warning to anyone who refuses to humble himself before God. That's the end. So as you look at those words, I want you to think about your final night, which will come for you and for me as it did for Belshazzar. You know, most of us in this room, we're Jesus followers. But if you're not a Christian, I want you to know none of us measures up. Eh? None of us measures up to God's standing. Every one of us has been weighed on the scales and found wanting. That's why Jesus did what he did, to pay our moral debt. And God offers forgiveness. And if you understand this and you choose to ask, you can receive it. And I hope you do that. I hope you do that today. hope you do it right now. hope you will. For the vast majority of us here, we're Christ followers and we don't have to worry about our eternal destiny. We have such a gift. But I do want to ask you, if the writing were on the wall for you today, if you were to find out your days were numbered and coming to an end, do you have any unfinished business? Anything you need to take care of? Max Dupree tells a story that captures something about a lot of the human attitudes toward death. Max is a, uh, a business leader and writer, and his dad lived to almost 100 years old. And uh, when he was 98, he broke his leg and had to have surgery. A couple days later, Max gets this call. His dad's sitting in a chair, and there were four nurses around him, and the nurses told Max, your dad won't go to bed. He's exhausted, but he won't leave the chair. So Max went to see his dad, still in the chair. How are you doing, dad? I'm tired, his dad said, 98 years old, just after surgery. How long have you been sitting in that chair? Well, a couple hours. Well, the nurses tell me you won't go back to bed. He goes, that's right. Why not? Well, because the minute I get in that bed, I'm going to die. Well, then there's no hurry, is there, Dad? Nope. They talked a while, and Max tried again. Now what do you think, Dad? You want, you want to go to bed? Nope. If I get in that bed, I'll die. Four times they had that conversation. Finally, Max says to him, Dad, you've told me for years you're ready to die. Well, sure, his dad said, but not today. I'm ready, but not today. How about you? I just want to leave you with this question. Have you got any unfinished business? If it should turn out that, you know, this day would be your, your last, you'd be numbered your last, and one of them will be, 
Is there something that you know you ought to take care of? Some of you have somebody you need to forgive. You still haven't done it. Get started now. Some of you have a real deep regret and there's someone you need to ask for forgiveness from. Do it now. Maybe you need to change patterns in your parenting or the way you're relating to a spouse or a friend. Maybe you need to finally get serious about addressing a sinful habit. Get serious. Some of you, God's been calling to serve or to give in a way that he's allowed you to and you've been resisting it for whatever reason in your heart. Fear or stubbornness or whatever. Just say, yes, how could I but serve you? Got any unfinished business? You know. You know what's at stake. This is your one and only life. So submit this to God with full devotion right now. Let's pray together. Our dear Heavenly Father, this is such a stark reminder for us that, you know, we we think we can go on, we can get away with stuff, things are just going to go on as long as we want them to, and And yet you see every action, you know every thought, every deed. And some of us have been kind of just doing our own thing for too long. And even those of us who are believers, we we just kind of ignore the voice. We ignore the people, we ignore the input. But we know, we know there's stuff that we need to do. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would convict us, convict our hearts by the power of your spirit. Lord, just help us to have soft hearts to hear whatever you're saying to us and to be willing to respond to that. And Lord, thank you. Thank you, God, that we can change, that we can have new life, that we can live every day because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. We are given power because of your love. And so, Lord, as we, uh, as we reflect on this, Lord, just give us that power. Give us that courage to take the step that you are calling us to take. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.